Okay, Matthew one twenty one says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Jesus came to save us. The shadow of the cross was already cast across the manger. If Jesus came to save, and he did, what better text is there than John 3.16? So it was the media, James, that's probably you. If you'll put that up there. This is the John 3.16 in the King James Version. If you are able to quote it uh, without looking at the screen, let's do that at this time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, if you weren't able to quote it, don't feel badly. Not everybody has that verse memorized. Some of you guys could probably remember the NFL football games. There was a guy with a goofy rainbow wig that would hold up a John 316 sign in the end zone. Usually when they kick an extra point, you could see him holding that sign up. And so people were asked at the games, what does that mean, John 316? And here were a few of the answers. Some said they thought it was John Madden's weight. Others thought it was the section where the bathroom was. And others thought perhaps it's a winning lottery number. No, it's just the most famous verse in the Bible. It's so simple that even a child can understand it, but yet it has such depths. We'll never get to the bottom of it. I want to look at it word by word this morning. Look at every word of this passage, because that's how important it is. Martin Luther called it the gospel in miniature. It's small. But it has it all. Let's start with God. Salvation proceeds from the heart of God. Many people, especially unbelievers, but even sometimes Christians, have a wrong view of who God is. They imagine God in their minds. as kind of a, a strict, mean deity up there in heaven, ready to hurl lightning bolts at someone for the slightest little mistake. And that Jesus is the kind and gentle and loving one. And he's always holding the father back. Like he's got his arms around his waist, kind of pulling him back. No, father, don't destroy them. Let me go down and save them. And the father reluctantly says, all right. But that's not the truth about the father at all. The scripture says that Jesus and the father are one. That Jesus does what he sees the father doing. We can't separate the father and son in those kind of categories. That's wrong thinking. The Bible says it is God who so loved the world. God initiated the plan of salvation. First John 4.10 In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, to appease God's wrath is what that word means. God so loved. John loves the word love. He uses it 36 times in his gospel, which is three times more than any other Bible writer. The word there is agape. 
Now, there were four Greek words, four main Greek words for love in the first century. And the word eros was the strongest of the words the Greeks had for love. Our word erotic comes from it. So you kind of get an idea of what that kind of love is. Fleshly, chemistry, love, passion, intense feelings. Not that that's necessarily always wrong. It's a very human kind of love. It's the love that attracts us to one another, maybe to our spouse in the first place. But the New Testament writers, in wanting to describe God's love in the Greek language, knew that eros was not a good word to adequately explain God's love. So they took a weak word, agape, that was hardly ever used, and they infused it with new meaning. It became more an act of the will, a decision, a choice, rather than a feeling. It's one who seeks the highest good, unconquerable benevolence. Sacrificial love and goodwill. That's the idea of agape. Now, I would venture a guess that many of us have a hard time believing that God loves us unconditionally. Because we're so used to love being conditional. If you perform well, then you're loved. I want you to realize this morning, before you leave this place, just how much God loved you. That he sent his son. Again, I think someone is probably thinking, yeah, I I can believe that God loves everybody else. He loves others, but not me, because look what I've done. Paul Tillich says something, I think, beautiful here. He says, grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when we feel that our separation is deeper than usual because we have violated another life, a life which we loved or from which we were estranged. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our indifference, our weakness, our hostility And our lack of direction and composure have become intolerable to us. It strikes us when, year after year, the longed-for perfection of life does not appear. When the old compulsions reign within us, as they have for decades. When despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness. And it is as though a voice were saying... You are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact That you are loved. Just accept his love this morning. Let God love you. It's not based on performance because we performed badly. Yet he still loves us. How much? This much. As much as it took for his hands to be nailed to the cross. I remember doing that to my boys. When I say, I love you so much. And they might say, how much? And I go, this much. That's God's love for you. It's this much. It's an intense love because his nature is to love. First John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because 
God is love. Not God has love or God loves, but God is love. So this morning, let God love you right where you're at. God so loved the world. Let's read 1 John 2.15, which says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, I'm confused. God loves the world, and here we're told not to love the world. What gives? Obviously, that word cosmos has three different meanings in the New Testament. First, planet Earth, which God made and said it's good, and we're to be stewards of it. Second way cosmos is used is the fallen human system, where human beings that are anti-God rule. That's obviously bad. The third usage is people. And that's how it's referred to here. Everyone. This word expresses the totality and unlimited nature of love. Interesting that there's no Jewish writing the time of the New Testament that ever said God loved the world. Nothing outside the Bible. It said that he loved the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He said that he loved the Jewish people, but not the world. The Old Testament and New Testament, the only thing in Jewish writings that says that. In fact, these Jewish writings say the Gentiles were only created to keep the fires of hell going. But our thinking can be similar, right? Provincial, ethnocentric. God loves Christians. God loves Americans. God loves Republicans, and he does. But he loves murderers, rapists, gossips, perverts, drunks. He doesn't love those sins, but he loves them. He loves Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, because he wants all of them to know him personally, because he wants to transform them to be more like Christ. Now, if God truly loves everyone, you would think the People he would love the least would be mass murderers. At least I might think that in my mind. So I want to read a quote from the trial of Jeffrey Dahmer. Some of you may remember that name, a mass murderer. Here's what Jeffrey Dahmer, when he said his last words to the court. He said, I feel so bad for what I did to those poor families. And I understand their rightful hate. I know I will be in prison for the rest of my life. I know that I will have to turn to God to help me get through each day. I should have stayed with God. I tried and failed and created a Holocaust. Thank God there will be no more harm that I can do. I believe that only the Lord Jesus Christ can save me from my sins. In closing, I just want to say that I hope God has forgiven me. I know society will never be able to forgive me. I know the families of the victims will never be able to forgive me for what I have done. I promise I will pray each day to ask for their forgiveness when the hurt goes away, if ever. I have seen their tears, and if I could give my life right now to bring their loved ones back, I would do it. I am so very sorry. I know my time in prison will be terrible, but I deserve whatever I get because of what I have done. Thank you, Your Honor, and I am prepared for your sentence, which I know will be the maximum. He gave. 
the proof that God so loved the world is that he gave. It, it wasn't just a thought in his mind or feelings in his heart. He acted. He's a giver by nature. He loves to give sacrificially, which is the true definition of love. If I were God in my kind of mindset and the whole world was opposed to me like it is to God, I would be so angry I would destroy it. But God instead gave his Good Friday gift. Reminds me of the lovely story of O. Henry called the gift of the Magi. He got her a comb for her hair by selling his watch. And she cut her hair to buy him a chain for his watch. Sacrificial giving, thinking of the other person. That's our Lord. A young couple celebrating their honeymoon together went on a cruise and they were assigned seats at dinner and they were assigned seats with a father and daughter. The father's face was terribly scarred, disfigured. And so the bride found herself not hungry, not able to eat. I mean, his appearance grossed her out. So she left the table. And didn't come back the next morning. So the daughter at the table saw her lounging at at the pool and sat down beside her. And she says, I want to tell you a story. She said, when I was a little girl, our house caught on fire. And everyone ran outside but me. And my father realized that I was still inside. And he ran back in that house. And he got me out. But he was badly burned. And she said, the price of his love is his terribly scarred face. It is the most beautiful face in the world to me. When dinner time came, the young bride came back to the table and sat down and leaned over and kissed his face and said, you are a beautiful person. Love gives. There's a cute story of the minister who died and Peter, of course, is standing at the pearly gates and Peter has to let you in. And so he said, it takes 100 points to get into heaven. And the minister said, well, I was a pastor for 40 years. One point. I visited the sick all the time. One point. I, I pastored youth for a while. Two points. I did a bunch of recovery programs. One point. At this, he realized, oh, no, I, I haven't done enough. And he began to cry. And he said, I need grace. And St. Peter said, grace, 100 points. Come on in. God gave. So we wouldn't try to earn it. His only begotten son. The King James Version of John 3.16 has 25 words. The very middle word, the 13th word, is son. His only begotten son, not only forgotten. That word begotten means unique, one of a kind, the one and only, unparalleled, incomparable, special. Jesus revealed God and is God. It's our sin that separates us from God. And we can't get back to him by being good enough. It took God to die for us. 
It should have been us on that cross. Instead, it was him. Jesus took our place. A professor of logic at the Texas A&M University gave a test. And on this test, he said, I'm going to allow you guys to have a cheat sheet. Whatever you want to put on a one eight by 11 sheet of paper, you can bring it into the test. And so one student came in and he laid a piece of paper on the floor beside his desk and had a graduate student in the Department of Logic come and stand on that paper and give him all the answers, of which the professor said, very clever. Christ stands on that paper for us. He does what we cannot do for ourselves. He took our sin. We receive his righteousness. When God looks at us, he sees Christ's blood covering us. And we say to God, but what about my sin? And God says, what sin? Whosoever. That means everyone. Are you a whosoever? Yeah, you are. Everyone is eligible for the greatest gift at Christmas. Jesus. Second Peter three, nine tells us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Salvation is for everyone, but sadly, not all accepted. God draws and woos and pleads with us to come back, but some reject the offer. Do not let anyone ever pull you away from Jesus. I remember the night I heard the gospel. I was almost 19 years old. I was at a festival and there were some street preachers there in the open air preaching Christ. And I saw this at a distance, didn't know what it was, but I recognized some friends from high school and they were shoving and pushing and making fun of these preachers. And as I got closer and I could see what was going on, my intention was originally to mock them, too. But when I heard what they were saying, I was pricked to the heart and I realized I need this. I want what they have. And when it was, they were done making fun of the, these guys, my high school friends all left except one. One other high school friend and I stayed. But then they came back and they grabbed him and they, they pulled him away. The next morning, I went to church with those guys and an altar call was given and I received Jesus Christ as my Savior on July 31st, 1977. That other friend from high school died in a car accident about two months after that event. He was driving drunk. I've always wondered to this day, was that his last chance to hear the gospel, to hear about Jesus and respond in faith? And he didn't. And his friends pulled him away. I say to you, don't ever let anyone pull you away from Jesus. Whoever believes. Now, lots of people out there in the world say they believe in God. They believe in Jesus or they believe the teachings of the church. They've given mental assent to a set of facts. Yeah, there's a God. Ninety percent of Americans say there's a God. I believe George Washington lived and was a true historical person, but that doesn't make me a Washingtonian. 
James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So belief isn't just mental assent to some facts. It's more volitional. It implies trust, total commitment and surrender of your life to God, which produces obedience in your life. You become more than just a a believer in Jesus. You become a follower of him. You obey because you want to please the one who's done so much for you. Let me illustrate it another way. You're drowning. And your rescuer is coming to save you, but has to wait because you're so frantic and panicking that you're going to drown that you would pull him under, too. So they wait until the person that's drowning gives up and then they grab him and can swim him into shore. So God wants you to stop fighting him by trying to save yourself by being good enough. You're trying to swim back to shore yourself in your own strength. Stop it. Just fall back into the loving arms of God and his Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your own ambitions and favorite wishes Every day and death of your whole body and in the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Don't miss heaven by 18 inches. It's got to go from your head to your heart. In him. Believes in him. Jesus said that the way is narrow and only a few find it. So we've seen already in John 3.16 that the gospel is very inclusive. It's for everyone who believes. But here it becomes very exclusive. John 4.16. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to God, No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's clear there's no other way to God. No other religion. No other philosophy. No other belief system can get you to God except Jesus. He's the only way. I can't dial any old phone number I want to to reach home. Just one set of numbers in sequence to reach home. The only way to reach God is Jesus. Shall not perish. The text is clear. If I reject God's offer of his son, Jesus, I will perish. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. It's appointed unto men once to die And after that, the judgment, the Bible says the wages of sin is death and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, that we are without God and without hope in the world. That's what it is to be like outside of Christ's saving work. There are no honorary sinners. We're all practicing sinners. We've all violated God's standards. 
We want to sin. And we do it over and over. We've broken the Ten Commandments. We're guilty before a holy God. And if we are not saved, we will die in our sins. To refuse to surrender your life to Christ is dangerous because he eventually stops drawing you. Your conscience gets hard. You feel no conviction of sin anymore. Romans 1.28 And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 2 Thessalonians 2.11 and 12 Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And if we die in that lost state in our sins, we will go to hell. There's a heart surgeon that tells a powerful story of an experience he had with a 48-year-old patient. And I just want to quote it here. He said, the patient began coming to, wrote the doctor. But whenever I would reach for the instruments, the patient would again lose consciousness and die once more. Each time he regained heartbeat and respiration, the patient screamed, I am in hell. He was terrified and pleaded with me to help him. And I was scared to death. He said, don't you understand? I am in hell. Each time you quit, I go back to hell. Don't let me go back to hell. After several death episodes, he asked, how do I stay out of hell? I told him, I guess it was the same principle learned in Sunday school, that Jesus Christ would be the only one you could ask to save you. Then he said, I don't know how. Pray for me. Pray for me. What nerve. I told him I was a doctor, not a preacher. Pray for me, he repeated. I knew I had no choice. It was a dying man's last request. So the doctor recalls saying something like this, and he asked the man to repeat the words, Lord Jesus, I ask you to keep me out of hell. Forgive my sins. I turn my life over to you. If I die, I want to go to heaven. And if I live, I'll be on the hook forever. The man lived. And does not remember the remarkable conversation. But he did become a Christian. And so did the doctor. Hell isn't only for murderers. There will be churchgoers there too. But have everlasting life. Eternal life. It never ends. Our minds can't grasp that. And the same is true about hell, by the way. Not only quantitatively in time, the duration of time, but qualitatively. I have eternal life, abundant life. No more suffering and pain and tears or death. And it begins the moment I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have eternal life. And in the future, heaven when I die. Charles Finney was in his last semester of law school. And he was just sitting on a bench on the campus. And a professor, one of his law professors, sat down beside him. And he asked him, what are your plans? What are you going to do with your life? And he said, well, I want to graduate law school, pass the bar exam and practice law and have a very successful career, make a lot of money. 
And then the professor said, what then? Well, that was kind of an uncomfortable question. So he said, well, I, I guess at the end of my career, I'll retire and enjoy my retirement years and travel and do whatever I want. But then he said, what then? Now he was really unnerved. And he said, well, I guess I'll die. And then the prof said, what then? And then he walked away. And Finney recounts how he just sat there and he thought about that question. And he said he, he knew about Jesus, but he did not know Jesus as his personal savior. So right then and there on that bench, he prayed to ask Jesus into his heart to save him from his sins. You know what? Finney never practiced law, but went into the ministry, became a traveling evangelist, quite famous, and led, I'm sure, many thousands and thousands of people to the Lord. So the question for you this morning is, what then for you? Do you know the Lord? I mean, there's a lot to love about Christmas, but the real reason for the season is Jesus. If someone offered you a gift at Christmas time, wouldn't you take that gift? Wouldn't you receive it? And wouldn't you open it? Wouldn't it be dumb to leave all your Christmas presents under the tree into January and February and March and never open them? So a gift is being offered to you by God, the gift of his son, the gift of eternal life. And all you have to do is just open it. Would you bow your heads, please? I'm going to pray and give you the opportunity. I mean, I don't want to assume that everyone in this room this morning is saved, knows Jesus Christ as his or her personal savior. So I just want to throw out that invitation. If you need to receive Christ as your Savior today, just slip up your hand. I want to pray for you. In case there's someone today, I don't want anyone to go into eternity without the opportunity to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. Anyone need to make that profession of faith today? I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation, not my good works. Lord, we can... Then together say, thank you, Jesus, for coming and dying for our sins to be our savior. We couldn't save ourselves, but you could save us and you did. And we put our faith and trust in you alone for salvation. And now, Lord, that you live in us, please walk with us and strengthen us, empower us every day to live for you. And we know, Lord, that there are plenty of people out there in our sphere of influence who don't know you. So, Lord, use us in word and deed and small and big ways to share our faith and to live our faith that others might come to know him, too. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.